0: We will begin our panel discussion, and um, I'll introduce the panel members a little more thoroughly this time. Dr. Mark Schuller, uh, professor in the Theology Department at our Concordia University in St. Paul, is here. Uh, Mark is a New Testamentler, but especially in the area of archaeology, and has done lots and lots of work there. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kloa, who's on my, my colleague on the faculty here on Mark's right, is uh, also New Testament. As we say around here, if you want to talk to a New Testament guy, just say, Jeff and you'll get some uh, response of one kind or another. Dr. Cla is, uh, as you know, a uh, text critic by training, and uh, then I'm, mm-hmm. the, I'm Jeff Gibbs, and you've heard me already. So, um, Jeff, do you want to begin with the response? And I'll start with you. Okay, I'll, I'll start with me then, so here I go. Well, again, I wanted to thank uh, our brother, Don Carson, for uh, just stimulating teaching. And uh, it's sort of like to him who has, will more be given. I've spent 20 years studying Matthew, and I'm taking notes copiously. So I I really appreciate that very much. Um, I I wanted to uh, uh, maybe comment a little bit on the introductory material, Don. And I really liked your sophisticated approach, uh, sort of eschewing all simplistic explanations for why Jesus teaches in, uh, in parables. Uh, the theme uh, in Matthew of uh, human blindness which can only be corrected by divine revelation. Nobody can figure this out. is such a powerful theme in so many uh, pericopes. Uh, so that those who have already begun to blind their own hearts in Israel now experience parables because, it's huttie, as uh, Dr. Carson pointed out, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. And yet, uh, just a couple of common sense observations that would prevent us from seeing this in too, for lack of a better phrase, Calvinistic a way. Uh, If Jesus' sole purpose in teaching in parables is to hide, then why in chapter 15 does he teach his own disciples? by means of a parable. And why in chapter 13, once they go into the house, he teaches his own disciples by means of parables. So there's, clear, there's something more going on there. And, in a sense, if his sole purpose is to hide thing from the, hide things from the crowds, why does he talk to them at all? Why does he continue to teach in the presence of the crowds even after chapter 13? and so forth. So anyway, I really appreciated that sophisticated both and uh, kind of an answer in the way you uh, linked it to uh, larger scriptural themes and not just themes in Matthew. Um, And then maybe just one more comment. We've already uh, disagreed in private about who precisely the brothers of Jesus are and um, uh, I'm left-handed so I'm clearly right and uh, Dr. Carson is misguided but still a brother on these issues. Um, but it, with regard to the parable of the talents it occurred to me that one mistake that I actually hear preachers and Christians making when they read these, this parable about the bags of gold is that it's not really about three slaves and it's certainly not about a sliding scale of faithfulness that y- you know you can ask the question I've heard people am I faithful enough and that's the wrong question that as in the artistry of the parable The first two slaves are closely paralleled. And you brought that out. You know, they receive, they say the same thing to the master. The second slave's words are slightly condensed. The master says exactly the same thing. So what we have here in this parable is two kinds of slaves. We have slaves who understand who they are because they understand who the master is. And I think that dovetails nicely into your Uh, underscoring that this is actually slaves who are owned by a master. And then we have one slave There are some beautiful artistic features in the parable uh, that show this contrast uh, between the first kind of slave and the second kind of slave who first hides behind the claim that he thought he knew what his master was like and the master then says well if you had thought that about me then you should have given my money to the bankers and I would have had I would have had tukas, I would have had interest. So. So it's, it's, really, it's really about uh, not are you faithful enough but do you understand who you are because you understand who, who the master is. So again I, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Carson's presentations and uh, thank Kim very much for them.
1: My thanks as well uh, Dr. Carson. I may be uh, one of those for whom these parables are doing more hiding than revealing. Uh, so uh, I hope I do not come under judgment by the time we're done but I'm I'm going to raise a few questions um, I do find very helpful the emphasis on context and so I want to put two questions one pertaining to social cultural context and one pertaining to literary context with the parable of the talents I wish to heed the advice given to Bob Wood- the Bob Woodward character and all the president's men follow the money I'm struck in this parable by the amounts of the money involved, especially when compared with the somewhat similar parable told by Jesus and recorded by Luke. If a talent is equivalent to 6,000 denarii, and if the denarii, denarius is the normal payment for a day labor, a single talent would be a lifetime of earnings to one of Jesus' hearers from Galilee, or even perhaps the audience of Matthew and Urban Antioch. Even more amazing is the return on the av- investment accomplished by the first two slaves. They doubled their money. By stark contrast, the third slave buried what is the masters. In my field of the archeology span of Galilee, many hypothesize that the urbanization moving forward under Antipas, with the rebuilding of Sepphoris and the founding of a Tiberius, along with the attendant monetization of the economy, would have put social stress on the local economy as wealth was extracted from those at the lower end of the economic spectrum for the advantage of the elite leaders associated with Rome. If one accepts this hypothesis of an increasingly differentiated society, and that's a big if, by the way, I wonder how Jesus' followers would have initially viewed the actions of the slaves. Would a peasant view a return of 100% as faithful or likely unscrupulous? Since the slaves represented the master in their dealings, would not such exploitation by an elite almost be expected? And, might not this view be reinforced by the third slave who called the master hard and calls out seemingly exploitative behavior of reaping where he did not sow? On the other hand, The third slave engages in behavior that would be sanctioned in later Jewish writings. Quote, anyone who buried a pledge or deposit immediately upon receipt of it was free from the liability. And again, money can only be guarded by placing it in the earth. Burial of financial hordes was acceptable behavior and continued throughout the Roman and Byzantine periods. We found another one this summer uh, during our excavation. So if one follows the money, Would not the hearers of this parable from their social position have hoped for a critique of the first two slaves and praise for the third? And if this perspective of the hearers has any validity, what's going on when Jesus reverses their expectations entirely? And if this perspective has no validity, I'm still troubled by the size of the numbers, so I would appreciate you uh, enlightening me on this one. Uh, With the sheep and the goats, the concern is literary context. The story lacks some of the formal markers of a parable with only a secondary parabolic element, namely the separation. Uh, Secondly, the purview is, quote, all nations, but it's in a Matthean context addressed to the disciples and followers of Jesus your published commentary on Matthew as today, you took up the least of these as your primary topic and interpreted it as the followers of Jesus. He wrote, the fate of the nations will be determined by how they respond to the followers of Jesus. As I've struggled with this parable, uh, I've noted its literary context and wonder if it isn't primarily addressed to followers of Jesus, but that the exhortation to acts of mercy is not necessarily limited to members of the community. Nothing in the passage itself, it seems to me, requires the narrower reading that the six actions are to be done to Christians only, assuming one only deals with the text itself. The interpretation of Adel as uh, Christian brothers and sisters comes from earlier uh, but does not a parable also need to, be st- to stand on its own? And that interpretation would be lacking if the parable were looked at on its own. And I wonder if uh, a, a closer contextual antecedent, that is, the, one, the ones experiencing the six circumstances, uh, might be a better interpretation of it. Also, I wonder if we might not need to distinguish between McCroy and Elaskistos in Matthew, McCroy seems, and its variants seem to be used positively, Uh, alakistost is used negatively of a disciple in Matthew 5.19, and we were chatting about that just a bit earlier. So I'm I'm just not sure, I'm quite clear on why it has to be just members of the community uh, to whom the... uh, Followers of Jesus are exhorted by this parable to be uh, ones for whom they show care. Again, I'm often confused. I seek enlightenment.:
2: okay. Yes, uh, uh, Thank you, Dr. Carson. I'm, I'm also an uh, early reader, or at least a young reader, of your uh, exegetical fallacies. Um, I have two copies on my shelf, first and second edition. Uh, in any case, when I found out that I would have the second session uh, dealing with theory and that Jim Veltz got stuck with the first session just with text, I was trying to scheme how to sell my session to Jim because uh, I know he would love to talk about theory um, for actually a bottle of wine, but it didn't work. Um, so I will try to channel Jim and be somewhat critical, although I certainly can't be as critical as Jim. Uh, so I'll leave it alone. Um, actually, I don't have much to, to, to strain at here. Um, I do appreciate when you, uh, I'm always leery of books on parables and, and sort of Bible studies on parables because it can often treat parables in the abstract as if you get sort of one thing in parables and another thing in Jesus' teaching. And what I very much appreciated is you're situating the parables within Jesus' eschatological preaching of the inbreaking of the reign of God. And so if you come up with something in the parables that Jesus isn't already saying, you're probably doing something wrong. And if you don't view the parables as, uh, again, this this, uh, uh, in-breaking of the reign of God and the preaching of the response to it, um, you're going to miss out. And I think that's an important uh, motif for especially us Lutherans. I I sense that we often like to make everything into gospel, (laughs) uh, to to kind of soft-pedal the message. But every time Jesus preaches, whenever the reign of God is proclaimed, you always have, along with the salvation and deliverance, you have judgment on unbelief. And what is uh, perhaps uncomfortable to us is that sometimes that proclamation of judgment might actually apply to us, that we um, take it a little too lightly and just think, oh, Jesus is talking about somebody else. Uh, Pretty clearly in Jesus' own ministry, the people hearing him were pretty comfortable with where they were at, and he refused to allow that hearing to take place. So I very much appreciate your situating the parables in that eschatological preaching, and would just... um, I guess, command one uh, to remind ourselves as teachers and preachers that that's also our task and that not every preaching of the inbreaking of the reign of God will be happy. Um, and second, when you, pre- when you teach or preach parables, that you're going to end up preaching the entire book. <laughs> so you end up doing Luke when you're doing the parables in Luke and Matthew when you're doing the parables in Matthew, but you guys already know that. I do have one uh, uh, question I'd like to ask, so specific with, with parable interpretation and how you, you dealt with some of these parables and its attention I always or often struggle with. How far do you push the details of the parables? And it was pretty easy with, with the last parable because it's, as Mark pointed out, a very thinly veiled parable. I mean, it's, it's sheep and goats, but then immediately he talks about visiting people in prison. and the Sheep and goats don't do that. If it was a parable, it would be, you know, I was a young sheep and you gave me the nice clover or something like this. And then you'd try to figure out what's the clover and we'd be, you know, fussing around with that. Well, he doesn't do that. Unless, that's pretty easy. But the, the previous parable, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the bags of gold or whatever you want to call them here, um, it's not real specific what those are. Or, or, and I noticed you push this pretty hard. So we you know, participate in the management of the master in the, in the new uh, uh, heavens and the new earth, which I very much appreciate that emphasis, that we will participate in the management, that we'll work at this. Now now I can see where, where you can get that given uh, a biblical understanding of the, of the new creation. Okay? I'm not sure if we didn't already know that I could push this in the parable. Okay? And why do you push it here in, in the parable of the talents, but you don't push it in Luke 16, with the rich man and Lazarus. So we don't want to push those details too far, but here we want to push the details. So I guess my question is, what are the controls, and are the controls uh, sort of what I like, or, or do we have specific textual evidence for those things in every case?
3: We'd now like to hear from Dr. Carson. (laughs) I feel much better now, and he feels exonerated. Um, I apologize earlier for saying that the break was extended. I misread my watch by half an hour. This is part of the uh, results of crossing 13 time zones yesterday. And uh, so I thought I was finishing earlier than I was. In fact, I scrunched this uh, time down a bit, and I'm sorry for that. And then when we're done here,
0: after you've published 50 books, you can do that.
3: No, it's, it wasn't the 50 books; it was the 10,000 miles yesterday. The, um, uh, and when, I, when we're done here, I'm going to slip out pretty fast because I want to catch a plane and go home and see my favorite wife. Uh, well, there's no po- point responding to Jeff Gibbs because he said only nice things, and obviously he's a man of rare insight. And. Uh, <laughs> And then the one thing that he alluded to, that he disagreed with me on, uh, he didn't actually articulate. So: um, it would take too long to convince you. Yeah, that's right. So and f- feeling threatened as I am, probably I'd just jump over that one. Uh, so let, let, let me come to uh, Mark um, Schuler, is it? Um, forgive my uh, slowness there in picking up names. Uh, is this a reflection of the economic situation with the? growth of uh, Sepphoris and uh, um, exploitation that necessarily follows from rapid growth and, and, and so on. It's pretty hard to prove a negative. It's pretty hard to prove a negative. But some people question just how much impact on a town like Nazareth the growth of Sepphoris really would have had, too. So as you rightly said, there are a lot of ifs in the economic assumptions right at the beginning. A lot of them. But in addition, um, Um, the notion that uh, the later Jewish texts that speak of it being uh, acceptable to put a pledge in the ground um, just don't uh, address the concerns of this uh, uh, parable Uh, the the, the slaves here are not told including the third slave to keep a money in trust in pledge but they are charged with it to, to improve the assets that's what they are expected to do so it's not just a question of keeping it in the ground, it's, 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 it's what they do to improve the master's assets. And, um, and, and so um, uh, I think that that is what you have to understand from he entrusted his wealth to them, uh, or, or else you can't make sense of what the master says even to the first uh, two um, to uh, people. It's not just he entrusts it to them for safekeeping or else you can't make sense of what the other two are praised for it seems to me. Um, and, and even that is presupposed by the third slave's response, um, um, uh, where all of the response is presupposed that what is expected is to improve the master's assets. Now he doesn't do it because then he would feel exploited or something. But this is not just a question of keeping something as a kind of private bank um, so, so again i 'm not sure that the Jewish parallels are quite pertinent to what 's going on. Um, so much for that one on the on the fate of the nations um, excuse me you say that nothing in the context presupposes the narrower reading of those of, of this expression, and I would say that um, that sort of approach to scripture reminds me of Walter Brueggemann um, who loves to take stories uh, out of their not only canonical context but out of their book context and and then they can mean an awful lot of things so Genesis 3 for example in Brueggemann becomes A breaking free from almost the tyranny of God. You become fully human only once you become genuinely free from God's restrictions and so on, so on, so on, so on. Because it's taken out of Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 4 and following. It's just Genesis 3 all by little story all by itself. And I think that that sort of, of, um, of reading of a text is, if you're dealing with a book, irresponsible. That is to say, before you read chapter 13, before you read chapter 25, you're supposed to read Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 and Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 and so on. So that these categories have already been laid out in Matthew. If you just open the book at, uh, at random and open it up in Matthew 25 and, and, and read Matthew 25, 31 to 46, you might have reason for thinking that it goes a certain direction. But if you've read Matthew closely up to then, then, then there is contextual reason for, 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 for not allowing that, that kind of reading. So, um, uh, that's what I would argue, and I'm, I'm, not, sure, I'm not sure that the um, uh, dichotomy you offer on mikros and alakistos and so on is quite right in any case, but that might take us into, um, into, uh, into, into more debate. I'm especially impressed not with uh, chapter 5 verse 19 only, but chapter 11 verse 11 and surrounding context. Uh, that, that, that passage is just wonderfully powerful it's, it, it seems to me in, it, in its context so um, uh, we'll pass that one by um, uh, how far do we push the details of the parables? Now, I tried to answer that a bit this morning with respect to Hans Vedov that is um, the, the details have to belong uh, to the uh, narrative flow, and if you find extra-textual referentiality, then it's part of the um, uh, unpacking the development of the storyline within the parable world. Um, the meaning has to belong to the narrative flow and cannot find its, um, its meaning in some sort of external grid. Uh, if you have to appeal, appeal to an external grid, then it's, it's probably mistaken. Um, and, and that's why, you know, when good deeds become the oil uh, of the spirit and things like that, that you find in some things pretty fanciful, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to rule them out. Um, as for the particular one about what heaven uh, is like, or the new heavens and the new earth is right, the particular one that you, you brought up, um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to push it too hard. Um, But the contrast is between being responsible for stuff now and being faithful with that responsibility versus um, being given even more responsibility later. And for, for that to work as an argument in the parable world, it presupposes this world and the world to come. It presupposes when the master returns and this in the context of the eschatological discourse when he's been talking about the end of the age and all the parables are talking about when the master re i mean it is talking about the contrast between now and then in an eschatological sense and and so um it's it's within that framework that it seems to me hard not to see something of that kind of contrast worked out now i don't know if i pushed it too far my main point uh, at, at that juncture in the lecture was to say that um there are a lot of complementary um, images about what the new heaven and the new earth will be like, and I, I just sort of danced through six or eight of them. And it, obviously, we could have done fifteen or twenty of them. And within that framework, the one that is uh, presupposed here—it I, 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 would be almost too strong to say taught here, but sort of presupposed here—is—is—is is, is that. Uh, uh, it, uh, there will be more work to do later and there are other parables that make the same sort of point or presuppose the same sort of point too so it seems to me that there is exegetical warrant uh, even though it's not overwhelming to go in that direction in, in this particular case um, i have not quite a knockdown, down drag him out argument but, um, um, but, but strong enough it seems to me that I wouldn't want to, 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 to avoid it or duck
0: it I disagree with him on a lot of stuff like the surprise motif is way overblown because guess what the cat's out of the bag (laughs) we all know that on the last day jesus is going to say this and we all know at this moment from this moment on if we didn't before that doing good to a fellow christian is really doing good to jesus right you guys already know that in fact sometimes that's why you do it are there no uh... Are there, are there comments from the audience? Maybe one or two, and then uh, we'll, yes, Professor John, Dr. John Kleinick from Australia. Nice and loud, John, please.
4: Parables have a theophanic function. Um, theophany, Old Testament, always is ambiguous. God reveals himself and conceals himself at the same time, judgment, salvation. And the same theophany can work in equal and opposite ways. Now, um, uh, now, I'm not a New Testament scholar, but coming from the Old Testament, particularly the reference to the, uh, the eyes who see, uh, uh, really hit me in the face. And what uh, uh, it could be, and I'd just like your reaction to this, um, that Jesus is saying that there is, if you like, a double theophany that occurs. There's the theophany in history, externally, no, his life, death, and so on. But then there is the theophany within, as you know, in the Old Testament, there's the promise of theophany in Zion, the church, the disciples. Now evangelicals quite often push the, like uh, the Wesleys, put the theophany purely subjectively, the theophany in the heart. Um, But uh, it seems in Matthew that he seems to situate uh, theophany within the church, the disciples, the core of the disciples, and... uh, uh, Hence the role of the uh, parables is to disclose, reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to those who have faith, those who are in the church. And there there is a seeing, but it's a a different kind of seeing to what was expected within the Jewish tradition. That's a a shorthand thing, but I, I I don't know if this makes any sense.
3: I agree with you entirely that there is a revelatory element in at least most of the parables. I, I guess I'd want to go back and, and say what I briefly said this morning, that the word patabale, plural patabale, is used in quite a lot of different ways in the New Testament. So one wants to restrict oneself to the narrative parables and, and to certain kinds of parables that are explicitly uh, uh, revelatory. But they are not all... I'll overstate this and then back off. They are not all revelatory of God and theophany in that sense, theophanic in that sense. Um, uh, it, seems, it seems to me that they are, but some of them are at least, are revelatory of what God is doing in the kingdom. That is, they are revelatory of the nature of the kingdom. I didn't take time to unpack the, secret, the, the, the explanation of ta musteria Teis um the secrets of the kingdom. Um, but, but I would argue that the secrets of the kingdom are bound up with the fact that God's kingdom is... Um, advancing now slowly and sometimes mysteriously and not with a big bang that was expected in anticipation of the end now I suppose in some sense that's theophanic but it's not theophanic in the Isaiah 6 sense so so that in Matthew 13 we do have Isaiah 6 quoted we also have Psalm 78 quoted where it seems to be taking an analogy out of the explanation of Israel's history uh, in terms of explaining some further things that are not necessarily theocentric in a narrow sense but granted that caveat I
4: agree with what you're saying um, it seems to me that in the New Testament at least and I'd argue reading the Old Testament the theophany of God also is the theophany of the people of God in glory um, so we appear with him in glory if you think in terms of the latter part of Isaiah um, Zion is glorified is revealed to the nations when God is revealed within Zion. The church is the city, the people of God are the city set on the hill and they are the light of the world. So there is uh, the reflection of God's glory within his people.
3: I agree that those themes can come together. I deny that they are always together and thus distinctions can be made.
0: Uh, WOULD YOU JUST uh, WITH THE PALMS OF YOUR HANDS EXPRESS YOUR APPRECIATION FOR OUR DAY TODAY?